Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Senior Chinese and U.S. diplomats discuss how to responsibly manage their bilateral relationship. China's central bank has vowed to use multiple policy tools to ensure a steady economic recovery. Argentina will make part of its debt payments to the International Monetary Fund in the Chinese currency yuan. The United States credit rating has been downgraded following concerns over the erosion of governance and its debt burden. You are listening to Broad Today, a news program with a different perspective. Perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Senior Chinese and U.S. diplomats have met in Washington to discuss issues of concern and how to responsibly manage their bilateral relationship. Reports say the talks covered various global issues, including Russia-Ukraine conflict and cross-strait matters. The meeting was the latest in a series of attempts over the past eight months to put a cushion under the deteriorating relationship. So for more on this, joining us on the line is Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Mahoney. Thanks for having me. Professor, over the past eight months, there have been frequent high-level contacts between China and the United States, including the recent talks, which U.S. State Department calls it a candid, substantive, and productive discussion. How do you look at these talks? Can they be served as a cushion to the deteriorating China-U.S. ties? Well, the way you phrase the question is quite interesting and apt. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's clear that the ties are still deteriorating. Uh, we can see this uh, with the unprecedented U.S.-led military drills that we've just witnessed in Australia and the ongoing efforts to reposition uh, offensive military capabilities in Asia and the South Pacific, including, unfortunately, nuclear assets all aimed ostensibly at China. Now, in mid-August, uh, uh, we'll see the U.S. hosting a summit with South Korea and Japan. And I think it's reasonable to expect, given Seoul's right would turn, uh, that China won't be pleased with uh, the outcomes from those meetings, uh, whatever they, they prove to be. Uh, on the other hand, uh, not talking is a lot worse uh, particularly as we move through this new era of difficulty and Washington's unabashed uh, return to great power competition and what luminaries like his Henry Kissinger warn uh, looks more and more like a new Cold War. So the talks we're seeing between these two powers uh, might be a necessary cushion, uh, but especially necessary because by any sober assessment, the relationship is still becoming more and more difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Talk or no talk is quite a dilemma. Uh, some critics argue that Americans' cooperative posture in talks does not match its behavior in reality. Washington just added two more China-based companies to the blacklist over concerns of the so-called forced labor. How do you look at this inconsistency? Well, you know, it's been proven uh, scientifically that forced labor is not a uh, concern in Xinjiang, but prison labor is a major problem in the U.S., uh, one that is exploited not only by a privatized uh, prison system, but by leading American firms and brand names. Now, in studies published last year, it was noted that an estimated 800,000 American prisoners are put to work in the U.S., some of them forced to work for free, others paid wages ranging from 14 cents to $2 an hour, with the national average around 63 cents per hour. Consequently, the sanctions the U.S. imposes on China are the height of of, uh, hypocrisy and double standards, and all the more so because Washington did not start talking about Xinjiang in a concerted way until it decided to abandon Afghanistan to the Taliban after two decades of occupation and destruction. How do you look at this kind of behavior? What do you think of the series of sanctions imposed by the United States on China through such a fabricated charge? I think it's it's the height of hypocrisy and double standards. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, we've seen uh, this hypocrisy not just applied to Xinjiang, um, but um, and not just to China, but but in China, it's been a, it's been uh, applied to um, uh, how China 
uh, has has treated Tibet, although Ch uh, Tibet has uh, seen uh, incredible development since liberation. Um, it's been applied to uh, China's relationship with Hong Kong um, and so forth and so on. So this is a, a narrative, a, a well-established narrative that the U.S. returns to uh, again and again uh, to try to assert itself as, as occupying a moral high ground, but one that is completely facetious. Mm -hmm. Apart from the sanction, the U.S. also launched an investment probe into two American companies, BlackRock and MSCI, for their involvement in investing in Chinese enterprises linked to military development and so-called human rights violations. This investigation covers over 60 Chinese companies. What's your assessment on the investigation? What are the motives behind such a probe, in your opinion? Well, the primary motivations are threefold. Uh, first, the U.S. has thoroughly politicized its relationship with China, but, but done so in a highly polarized political landscape at home where the two parties are now both anti-China and thus agreeing with each other on anti-China policies, but also competing with each other to see who can be the most anti-China. Second, the U.S. wants to kneecap Chinese development particularly as it relates to anything technological and above all, anything with potential military applications. And third, some in both parties still dream of reshoring manufacturing and becoming economically independent from Chinese production. And we see them pressuring advanced tech firms in South Korea, Taiwan, and elsewhere to build and invest in the U.S. in order to stay in Washington's good graces. Then, Professor, what do you think might be the potential implications for economic cooperation and investment between the two countries uh, with continued economic oppression from the United States? Well, we're at a moment now that can be described as a point of inflection. Uh, on the one hand, uh, last year, uh, bilateral trade levels hit their highest point ever, despite the problems associated with the pandemic and the U.S. instigated trade war, despite the U.S. blacklisting Chinese firms and sanctioning some uh, Chinese officials, despite what we've seen with uh, the CHIPS legislation and so on. On the other hand, given the developments that we've seen uh, regarding uh, tech and company blacklisting, given uh, U.S. efforts to source products elsewhere and uh, the still unrealized dream to produce more at home, we might well expect that we'll eventually see a significant downward shift in bilateral trade. Now, it's clear that Beijing realizes this and is taking steps to adjust, including once again reinvigorating efforts to spur domestic consumption to make China less vulnerable to U.S. efforts to harm China's development and economic progress. Mm -hmm. Professor, we talked about the U.S. government's expressed willingness to responsibly manage the bilateral relationship with China while simultaneously imposing sanctions and investigations on Chinese companies. How long do you think this kind of strategy from the United States will go on? You know, I've always regarded this as a sort of paternalistic language and reasoning uh, that we should expect from an imperialist-minded hegemon like the United States. Now, the U.S. has long used the word manage when it talks about China. Previously, it was about managing China's rise, and now it's about managing deteriorating relations. However, the U.S. failed to manage China's rise, and now the U.S. has ruined China-U.S. relations because it's likewise failed to stem sufficiently its own declines. Consequently, this kind of rhetoric is also completely disingenuous. Because the U.S. has ruined and continues to ruin the relationship, including effectively waging an unprovoked economic war or worst against China, including provoking China over Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, and the South China Sea, with mm -hmm. an increasing number of dangerous uh, military encounters, it's facetious to say that it's responsibly managing the relationship at all. I mean, thank goodness both sides are still talking, but it's a completely uh, misrepresentative thing to say that the U.S. is being responsible here. Professor, help us here. Can you identify any patterns or trends in examples uh, where the U.S. has demonstrated inconsistency between its stated intentions and actual actions towards other countries? There's a very long list, unfortunately, and I've already mentioned Afghanistan. We can also point to recent, recent uh, fractures with Saudi Arabia. We can point to the U.S. frequently embracing and abandoning the Kurds in Iraq. We can point to the U.S. 
frequently embracing then destroying right-wing and non-democratic regimes while constantly proclaiming itself a champion of, of uh, democracy. We can see the U.S. assassinating key foreign figures as it did openly against a leading uh, um, uh, Iranian general uh, when he was visiting Iraq a couple of years ago, uh, which some reports hold was an attempt to derail uh, uh, attempts to uh, 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 see a reconciliation between uh, Tehran and Riyadh, which we should note was finally accomplished securely in Beijing this year. Now, we can also point to the U.S. isolating uh, former uh, Libyan leader uh, Muammar, Muammar Gaddafi as a terrorist, then working with him against terrorism after he renounced efforts to acquire weapons of mass destruction, and then helping to kill him in 2011 in the middle of the so-called Jasmine revolutions that rocked the Arab world, which the U.S. had a hand in part uh, or in part uh, cause. Now, the fact is, no one is really naive about this, not even countries like Japan, South Korea, and Australia, as well as some in Europe, uh, and as uh, French President uh, Macron wore, that appear to be moving uh, increasingly like vassals. Now, to put it bluntly, I think they're more afraid of the U.S. than China. Consequently, they're doing what the U.S. says, even if it ruins their relationship with Beijing, mm -hmm. and even if it exposes them to other risks. Professor, from your expertise, what recommendations would you offer to promote a greater consistency and trust in U.S.-China relations, you know, reducing the potential for ulterior motives to influence the bilateral relationship? You know, I think I think uh, the, the, the key is uh, candor, real candor and honesty. And, and we can see the U.S. saying that they're having these candid discussions. But I, I don't think uh, the U.S. is really being can, uh, candid or open about its its real strategic objectives towards China. Now, I think you and your listeners can see that I'm not an optimist presently. I'm concerned that we're facing a number of escalating events, including several that can be described as singularities uh, related to climate change, the rise of AI, the recent pandemic, and deteriorating China-US relations that are intersecting and creating growing risks of unpredictable tipping points and possible cascade effects. Now, I hope for my kids and everyone else's sake that I'm wrong. And I hope that these ongoing conversations reverse the current trends, which to me appear like positioning via a strategic apocalyptic in-game of sorts. So, you know, let's encourage positive interactions ourselves and try to uh, uh, affect these as much as possible while also being sober and clear-headed about what's actually happening. Thank you very much, Professor, for your time and insights. That's Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Coming up, China's central bank has vowed to use multiple policy tools to ensure a steady economic recovery. This is Row Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to Road Today. China's central bank has vowed to use multiple policy tools to ensure sufficient liquidity, support the development of a real estate market, and tackle major financial risk as part of the country's efforts to ensure steady economic recovery in the second half of the year. The central bank says it will continue to implement a prudent monetary policy efficiently, improve and stabilize market expectations, and create a favorable monetary and financial environment for the stable growth of the real economy. So for more on this and China's economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So first, Dr. Joe, what do you expect for the central bank's monetary policy in the second half of this year? How to, you know, support the development of the real estate market and at the same time tackle the major financial risks? 
Yeah, we know that for the Central Bank of China, it has been always have the same tone of uh, supplying the market with enough money, while at the same time to reduce the risks, not only in China, but also something to do with uh, the foreign exchange rate. So for the second half of the year, I think that there are some new focus for the central banks, like you mentioned about the real estate. And I do believe that the central bank is also trying to address these problems by uh, looking at the reflect of the market and trying to look at some of uh, the new innovations, innovative ways like the derivatives of the financial markets. So it's a kind of a thing that for the Central Bank of China, it's a very big market. So they have to provide a better expectation for the market. In this regard, I do believe that they will still trying to address the different challenges in the second half of the year. Mm, and what's the prospects of the internationalization of RMB in the rest of the year? I think that for this goal, uh, the central bank is trying to stabilize the exchange rate. It means that we will not want to appreciate the RMB while also know of the depreciate of that. So in this regard, I think that the proper ways of stabilizing the expectation of the market is necessary. Well, in this regard, we are also trying to provide better channels for the different stakeholders to use RMB, like to, to reach agreement with other central banks in the world and trying to provide the better choices for the stakeholders in the market. Mm-hmm. And China has also issued 28 new measures to support the private economy. So what are the most important factors, do you think, in creating a level playing field for them? Yeah, I, I think that uh, most of important of that is that we should provide uh, fair and better platforms for the private sectors to cooperate or even compete with uh, other stakeholders. So in this regard, I think that uh, these measurements are trying to not only to give some facilitation measurements to the private sector, but also to have a very clear signal that all the stakeholders should play a very uh, fair levels in the competition. So in this regard, I think that they address the many challenges that the private sectors are facing and also provide more possibilities if the private sector want to explore in the market. Mm, And what are financial support for the private sector, do you think? Yeah, uh, it's a very challenging problem for the banks because the the banks are required to keep a low default rate, uh, like from the different uh, borrower of this money. Well, actually, it's a, a, a common consensus that the private sectors may be more risky in the, uh, in paying back the, the debt. So I think that the government, uh, especially the administrative uh, administrations, will trying to provide a better and more flexible principles to govern the banks, and they will also uh, require some specialized banks like from the the city levels, from the provincial levels to provide a certain kind of uh, loans to the private sectors to address these problems. And what about the support for the small giants and high-tech enterprises? What can be done to protect their intellectual property rights? Yeah, as the name indicates that for these companies, they are not in a very big scale, but they are very important source for the innovation. So for sectors, especially for the smaller ones, they are able to to try to explore different possibilities. To address that problem, I think that the governments, I mean, different ministries are trying to cooperate in this regard. Some of them are giving some support, like for the directions on the innovation, while some others are trying to make them connect with each other. Because Mm. the supply chains are very complicated and it is very important for them to do the innovation. Well, on the third level, I do believe that banks are also very interested in investing in these small and uh, very innovative uh, companies. They are very helpful for the better and innovative ways of development. Mm. And this is for the private sector. And earlier this week, China also issued 20 measures to boost the domestic consumption. And in this plan to boost the consumption, green consumption was actually highlighted. So how does it reflect China's shift in the consumption structure? Yes, consumption is a 
kind of very important. And I, I would say that it is more important than before because we are trying to change our development mode. So to meet the demand uh, from the market, we should try to provide a better support or supply to them. Well, on the second level, I would say that the, the scenarios or different kind of possibilities for the consumers to consume is even more important. Well, if, uh, for example, if you are looking at uh, some of the, the consumptions, I mean, the daily consumptions products like for the refrigerators or air conditioners, they are required to provide better and more choices to the consumers by lower carbon emission and provide its efficiency of using the electricity more wisely or better. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the macroeconomic support or policies is needed to expand consumption and restore the market confidence? Uh, I think that for the consumption, we need to provide enough supply. I mean, not only for from Chinese own market, but also by importing more things from different markets. Well, that it has to be uh, on the very good cycles if we can send our very clear signals to the providers and suppliers of those products and also services. Maybe that will encourage them to put more money in expanding the capacities. So uh, in this regard, I would say that uh, for the consumption, we need to improve or increase the income of the people. Uh, maybe it's, uh, it's also some problems we have to consider like the employment, like the creation of uh, uh, different jobs possibilities, not only in the urban area, but also in the suburbs and villages. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Joe, so how do you view the foreign direct investment or FDI in the second half of this year? Actually, a number of foreign companies are announcing the deals to increase their investments in China, right? Yeah, uh, you know, if you are looking at that data, I would say that China is outperforming many countries in the world. We have continued the you know increase of FDI from many other countries. So in this regard, we are not only trying to address the problems uh, from the the big companies like the the world's famous companies, but also trying to provide better space or uh, cooperating possibilities for many countries from the developing uh, developing areas. So in this regard, I would say that uh, almost all the local governments of China are trying to uh, improve their business environment and providing better facilitation. And in this regard, it will be even stronger if we can try to integrate the domestic markets and provide better and uh, you know connected market for those companies. And what industries or sectors do you think are mostly attractive for FDI? I think for the FDIs, they are have different purposes of uh, coming here to China. Some of them, if they are trying to address the problem of cost, maybe they will go to the middle and the western part of China to find a, a little bit cheaper labors uh, there. But some companies, if they want to expand the market, they will try to have better support in the logistics and also wholesales, uh, some of the retail um, sectors. So uh, I mean that all the companies are trying to address address or fund their abilities by connecting with China. It is much possible if we can try to look at some of the high-tech knowledge related sectors and also something to do with the market demand. And Mm. I I would say that they are some of the uh, very important and hot aspects for the investors to come here to China. And with all the measures to support the private economy and domestic consumption, so what do you think is the outlook for China's economy in the second half of this year? I would say that uh, it is a little bit bright, but we have to be patient because it is not only decided by Chinese government only. We are also connecting with the world market. So we have to be careful design the, the path and trying to to make the market reflecting more vigorous. And we will protect the innovation by intellectual property rights and also give uh, more confidence to the market by signing uh, the international agreements or reach some of the rules with other countries. And in this regard, I still believe that when the market is reacting collectively, that the economy will be stronger and more sustainable. 
That was Dr. Jeremy, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. More to come. Argentina will make part of its debt payments to the International Monetary Fund in the Chinese currency yuan. The United States credit rating has been downgraded following concerns over the erosion of governance and its debt burden. Stay informed and stay connected with World Today. We value your opinions and questions, so be sure to interact with us on Twitter and join the conversation. It's at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Argentina will make part of its debt payments to the IMF in yuan through an extension of its currency swap with China. The remaining payment will be funded by a loan from the Development Bank of Latin America. The arrangement enables Argentina to avoid tapping into its dwindling dollar reserves. This move came after the Central Bank of Argentina permitted the use of yuan for deposits by individuals and legal entities. So for more on the news, let's have John Ross, Senior Fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, John. Pleased to be here. First of all, how do you look at the debt settlement of Argentina? What prompted the decision by Argentina government? Well, there's two reasons for the decision. One which is very important is that the United States, both directly and indirectly through agencies which it de facto controls, of which one is the International Monetary Fund, because the United States is the only country with veto rights in the IMF. The US has increasingly been unilaterally using sanctions through its control of the dollar against a whole range of countries. And the, the ability to settle in RMB means that uh, this can be avoided. This is one of the ways of preventing um, U.S. blackmail using the question of the dollar. So that's one aspect of the situation. Um, the second situation is, of course, that it's very good that there's been this loan, which has been carried out from the Development Bank of Latin America, um, which is going to be a means that Argentina can make a payment to the IMF without having to use its dollar exchange reserves. This is very, this is very good news. Uh, for particularly countries in the global south. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, how significant is the recent currency swap agreement between China and Argentina in a broader picture? What implications does it have for both countries' economies? Well, there is an increase in use of currency swaps, um, which involved the RMB and which involved China. This has now got to quite a significant number of countries. And, and there's another aspect of it, which is it's all, there's also a currency swap agreement which involves the new development bank, popularly known as the BRICS Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's got the equivalent of $100 billion in it. Now, it's never actually been used, although it's, it's available there as a contingency. And therefore, if these currency swaps are, again, going allow the, prevent the U.S. carrying out unilateral um, type of sanctions. The, the basis for it is now it, what it really means is that the RMB is being recognized as a hard currency. Mm-hmm. That means it's most countries in the world, except those which are subject to um, particular sanctions and um, maneuvers by the US, know perfectly well that if they get the RMB, they're getting a stable currency and they're quite happy, therefore, to make payments in it or to accept payments um, in it. So it's um, a part of the, the what you might call the, the fact that China has now got a strong currency internationally. Speaking of that, with more Latin American countries like Bolivia also turning to China for currency swaps and uh, trade settlements, what are the key drivers behind this trend of de-dollarization in the region? Well, there's two there's two aspects to this. One is that the driving force is very simple because the United States is not really allowing the dollar anymore to be used as an international currency. It's it's carrying out all sorts of unilateral sanctions, the most extreme of which it seized $300 billion of Russia's foreign exchange reserves unilaterally, it, which is just a robbery. Um, it Then it carried out sanctions against individual countries, many, many of them, um, and countries want to avoid this. Now, there's another aspect to it, which sometimes I think people get a bit carried away. I, I don't see the, the dollar being replaced as mm-hmm. the main international trading currency. 
um, in, the, in the next period, by which I mean, let's say, 10 to 15 years. Um, but what it does mean is that the US ability to carry out unilateral sanctions against countries is being weakened. And, and that aspect of de-dollarization is very important and very positive. Because if you want to if you want to have the world currency, then you've got to behave in a responsible fashion. Mm -hmm. The RMB is China behaves in a responsible fashion. It doesn't it doesn't make judgments about whether to make loans in RMB, depending on whether it politically likes countries or not. It carries them out on economic criteria, and the United States is violating this. So people want to reduce their exposure to the to the dollar because they may be subject to political sanctions, not not anything to do with the economy. Mm -hmm. But Argentina's decision to use yuan to repay IMF debt has raised concerns, mainly from the United States, about increasing Chinese influence in the country's economy. What's your response to such a narrative? Well, my, my response is the United States created the problem for itself. If the United States had behaved in a responsible fashion, uh, that is, it has the world currency that gives it certain obligations, one of which is it doesn't use it to manipulate it for its own narrow national interests, then people would just have continued carrying on the, um, the using the dollar. But instead, this, the US has sort of picked up its gun and blown off its own foot. And naturally, therefore, people are going to look to alternatives. One alternative, incidentally, is the euro, uh, which is also a hard and acceptable currency. And another one is the RMB. So the United States, if it's crying, it's only got itself to blame for this um, this, this situation. Um, China's not been aggressively trying to replace the dollar. Um, it's just been making good loans. But the U.S. has created problems for itself. And then as more Latin American nations explore alternatives to the U.S. dollar, how do you foresee the evolving dynamics in the region's economic and geopolitical relations with both China and the United States? Well, I, I think for the next period, the, the dollar will still continue to be the main trading currency because it would take an enormous change to shift out of the dollar. It would reorganize the whole world financial system. Um, and that's going to take not going to take place short term, I say 10, 10 to 15 years, unless the US becomes more and more unilateral. I mean, mm -hmm. if it starts carrying out actions against really big economies uh, such as China, then this process might be speeded up. Um, but that's going to create turmoil inside the US. So it'll probably step back uh, from that. So the, the, the dollar will be continue to be the main trading currency. Um, but what currencies that are confronted, but countries which are confronted with unilateral sanctions by the US now have an alternative. And that mm. reduces the leverage and the ability of the United States to carry out threats. So this is a very positive development. I mean, I think the US will probably continue to act stupidly, in which case the role of the dollar will gradually decline. But that's imposed by the United States, not by anybody else. Thank you, John, for your valuable insights on the China-Argentina currency swap and its implications for Latin American nations. That's John Ross, a senior fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. This is World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back. You're listening to Road Today. The United States credit rating has been downgraded following concerns over the erosion of governance and its debt burden. Fitch lowered the U.S. government's rating from the top level of AAA to AA+. The agency said it had noted a steady deterioration in U.S. governance over the last 20 years. Fitch warned of the U.S. vulnerability to economic shocks, adding that factors such as debt ceiling, potential recession, and political challenges contributed to the decision. This marked the U.S. second downgrade by a major credit agency since 2011. So for more on this, joining us on the line is Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
Uh, Professor Gong, how do you assess the downgrade? Some say it will have lasting consequences for the role of the world's largest economy in global financial markets, while others、um, brushed off the impact, saying the downgrade is an insignificant development. What's your stance? Well, I think the、uh, you know the, the the credit rating is all about the probability of a、uh, default. You know, in honesty, you know, from from triple A to two、uh, A plus, it's not going to make a huge difference in terms of the probability of、uh, defaulting. You know, I don't think、uh, Uncle Sam is going to default in his debts.、Uh, nevertheless, I think、um, you know it's very symbolic,、uh, and also it probably will add the、uh, a little bit the、uh, the cost of financing、uh, mm-hmm. next time. Um, uh, the Treasury Department、uh, issues bonds again,、um, so、uh, you know it just adds the、uh, cost of financing for the、uh, United States、uh, debt.、Um, I, I read through this report,、uh, and I think you know, the reasons it mentioned uh, is uh, uh, very reasonable.、Uh, for example, you've mentioned erosion of governance.、Mm-hmm. It, it's it's kind of interesting to me to see that you know this issue about.、Um, You know, deterioration in standards of governance.、Uh, mm-hmm. For example, you know things excited for,、um, you know the the、um, um, you know the the the,、uh, the fight of the debt limit issue. You know the chance of government closing down. You know all these things. These are very political in nature, and how these things can be incorporated in into the credit rating. You know, I think this is something that the U.S. lawmakers should think about the next time when they do these things again. Indeed, it's very interesting. The agency mentioned the erosion of governance. Then, what specific factor do you believe have contributed to the steady deterioration in U.S. government's physical management over the past two decades? Well, I think first of all, it's the ballooning debt itself. I think you know it says that the um, the, um, uh, the 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 deficit, the fiscal deficit, as a percentage of GDP, has been steady coming up.、Um, And、um, you know, and also、uh, as a result of fighting inflation, you know, interest rates have been rising,、um, and so the uh, uh, the money that needs to be servicing the debt is steadily rising. I think it mentioned something like you know over twenty percent, I believe, of the uh, uh, federal budget,、uh, federal revenue would be dedicated to servicing the debt. You know, in other words, paying interest.、Um, so, so that's a very、uh, heavy burden. Part of the U.S. government,、um, and another thing I think we just talk about, you know, it's the, the political gridlock, it's the partisan bickering, it's just that the、uh, politics on Capitol Hill is getting、uh, more and more nasty,、um, and、um, you know, it's a it's it's a very nature of the、um, the current uh, uh, Congress uh, in Washington,、mm-hmm. uh, and, and these are the things that.、Uh, uh, Credit rating agencies do take into consideration, believe it or not.、Mm-hmm. Speaking of political struggle in the United States, the Feature Report mentions the debt limit standoffs as a major concern. So, in your opinion,、uh, or help us understand more about this, how have these political impasses affected the U.S. economy today? Um, well, I think it slows down the political process. It's getting, you know, very difficult to get things done. Although, you know, let's give credit to、uh, Joe Biden's administration that indeed managed to pass several very important bills. In my view, you know, these bills、uh, do have long-term implications for the U.S. economy. But, you know, overall, I think the political climate in Washington is becoming more and more less cooperative. It's becoming more and more partisan. Um, so、um, you know that hampers、um, you know the government functioning well. You know I think the、uh, don't underestimate the impact of the、um, debt limit standoff.、Um, it, you know the、uh, Janet Yellen actually warned that,、mm-hmm. uh, and indeed you know his her warning、uh, became true now.、Uh, it was indeed quoted right、uh, in, in 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 this downgrading report. So,、uh, so I think、uh, you know all these actions、uh, do make a difference in the long run,、um, and、um, but but this is something that is very difficult to change,、uh, given the the、uh, political nature inside the Beltway. You know, it's just going to be more nasty, and、uh, you know the, the the partisan bickering is going to continue. Mm-hmm. The lack of a midterm physical framework has been、uh, highlighted as a problem. How does this deficiency impact long-term economic planning in the United States? 
Yeah, well, I, I think the long-run you know, macro picture of the uh, United States government's debt uh, looks quite grim. I mean, you know, you look at the forecasting you know, being written in this report, um, its percentage of GDP, the debt keeps going up. Uh, I think it mentions something over 100% now, you know, the overall debt as percentage of GDP. That's actually a fairly large number. Um, so, um, you know, it's continued to see, at least in the foreseeable future, you know, increased government fiscal deficits, increased debt. Um, and ultimately, you know, these things will have to be paid by the next generation. And, uh, um, you know, it, it does have um, financial implications. You know, interest rates are going to be higher. Um, you know, tax dollars will be used more and more to service these debts, uh, you know, used less for other meaningful purposes. Um, and also, let me say that the United States is also having a very sizable and increasingly sizable uh, defense budget. So, you know, if you take all, all these two items, you know, just what's the money left is uh, it's not many, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. what can what what what, what um, you know what things can be done with with this very limited uh, the budget uh, resource? So, uh, so I think uh, you know the overall impact on the economy um, will be uh, manifested over time. Um, but the report also says that you know the United States uh, is the has the uh, the this currency um, the dollar is the world currency so it has a tremendous resource to finance its debt. Um, you know, interestingly, um, you know the official name for this uh, downgrade is called the uh, America's uh, Long Term Foreign Currency Issue mm-hmm. default rating, right? It's foreign currency issue. But you know, from as far as U.S. is concerned, foreign currency is the local currency, it's the U.S. dollar. So, uh, um, you know, it's able to use that position um, to keep financing the expanding the debt uh, in the United States. But at some point, I think there will be some reckoning, uh, even though uh, that will take a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Professor Gong, uh, Fitch predicts wider deficits in the coming years. How might this increasing deficits affect U.S. government's ability to respond to economic shocks? And what are the potential implications for financial markets and investors? Well, it, it just uh, constrains its uh, uh, you know, policy tools uh, with the ever-expanding deficit. Uh, but you know, in the short run, I think... Um, the, the impact on the U.S. economy is going to be quite limited because uh, uh, I, I, I sort of have a little bit of a disagreement, actually, mm-hmm. with the support. It's projecting a uh, recession in the fourth quarter, I believe, if I remember this correctly, and also the first quarter of next year. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, it, 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 it may be right, but, but I think, uh, you know, if you look at the labor market, and I pay a lot of attention to the labor market, mm-hmm. uh, the United States labor market is still very strong, in my view. Um, so, um, um, you know, even if we have a rec- even if the U.S. is going to have a recession towards the end of the year, I think it's going to be very mild. So what it means is that uh, probably the federal government uh, doesn't have much of an imperative in the short run to uh, do something um, to stimulate the economy. Uh, that that would be my guess. So, uh, you know, a little bit of a more <laughs> deficit, uh, mm-hmm. um, more constraint on uh, you know, the fiscal uh, side uh, to jumpstart the economy is probably less of an issue at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I think um, you know, and I, I do agree with a lot of analysts that uh, this downgrade um, in the short run is not going to make a huge difference. Okay, thank you very much, Professor, for sharing your insights with us. That's Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. The Taiwan-based chipmaker TSMC says production at its first plant in Arizona State of the United States will be delayed until 2025 due to a shortage of skilled workers. The company says it will send more experienced technicians from the island to the United States in order to solve the issue. But the move has sparked tensions with the workers in the United States. Union representatives say American electricians working at the Arizona construction site feel betrayed. They suspect TSMC is attempting to replace them with overseas workers. TSMC is a leading supplier of AI chips. The delay comes right when investment in AI is booming. So for more on this, my colleague Xu Yawen spoke with Einar Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute and the founder of the Asian Narratives.
Anner, we know TSMC was supposed to have its first operational chip factory in Arizona by late 2024, but it has now confirmed delays. And the company says the delays are mainly due to a shortage of technical workers with critical expertise in the U.S. In the meantime, on the other side of the story, the labor union in Arizona claims that this was an excuse and the company just wants to bring in lower paid workers from Taiwan. So I'd like to hear about your assessment of the whole situation here. Okay, Yavin, there's a couple of things we have to unpack first. Okay. First, TSMC said quite some, a few, more than a few months ago, about uh, five, six months ago, that uh, chips made in the United States, uh, despite the massive subsidies, would cost 30% more than the identical chip made in Taiwan. Mm. All right, so th that should uh, prepare you part. Now, why is this? Why are they talking about time? Why is it important that he says, well, we wanted to be up and, and running in 2024, but now we're sometime in 2025 due to delays? And the reason that's important is these fab facilities have to be up and run. Is is when they're new, that's when people want to buy them. So if there's any delay, weeks or months can means you know hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of orders. So it, it's very very important that these things are very predictable. That everything goes according to schedule. Now, obviously, when you move to a place like the United States, they're not familiar with, there are always going to be some issues. But what you're hearing is a steady stream of indications that the U.S. is not ready. Now, the uh, union chair said quite frankly that, you know, he thinks it's just all has to do with uh, uh, the cost of production. But that's really not true. I mean, you know, if it was just about the cost of production and they said, oh, you know, we have experience doing this for Intel. Well, then why is the United States having to import companies uh, like uh, TSMC to build chips? Uh, chip fab factories, I should say. And the answer is very simple. The U.S. lags in terms of competitiveness, both on pricing, the ability to deliver, the people that are required, even some of the uh, systems. You know, there he was also talking about last Thursday, he was saying that there isn't enough cleaning, uh, what they call these chips have to be made in very clean rooms. Mm -hmm. And the facilities and equipment necessary for that is not available. So that's going to have long lead times. And then it has to go across, you know, the ocean and things like that. So every moment counts. And at this juncture, TSMC is telling the world, look, you know, you, you might want to go get a subsidy, but it's not going to be realistic because you're not going to be able to compete, especially if your chips and made in the U.S. are 30 percent more costly. Uh, the only ones who are going to buy them, of course, the military and the government. But what does that mean? That means the American people, the taxpayers, are mm -hmm. going to pay 30 percent more for these chips. So you said the U.S. is not ready for TSMC. And also facing all of these challenges, as we mentioned, the shortage of specialist workers in the U.S., the rising tensions with the labor union, and also the high costs of factory building. Facing all these setbacks, remind us why TSMC chose to move to the U.S. at the first place. Well, simply political pressure. I mean, it's not like they're making a wholesale move. Uh, this chip plant represents less than 3% of their production. It's just, it's not competitive. The whole Taiwanese chip industry developed based on competition. And they know that that's how the world works. And people will buy their chips if they're competitive. Uh, the U.S. is saying, hey, come over here. You know, we have this political need. We, we, we fear the uh, supply chain uh, that has been developed because we're not sufficiently important in it. But that's not enough reason for them to move uh, over there because there's just no long-term future. Now with the delayed opening, what consequences do we expect to see? While the U.S. plan to boost this domestic semiconductor industry through TSMC moving to the state work and uh, while it's planned to contain China work? No, no to all of the above. <laughs> and the reason is, um, you know, the U.S. put together this $200 billion CHIPS Act and it passed. It was, it was supposed to strengthen the U.S. domestic semiconductor industry, create new high-tech jobs and things like that. But they don't have people. Now, when, when it comes to a fabrication facility, 
There are two parts to it. One is the construction, highly specialized. It, everything has to be extremely precise when you're dealing at this level, you know, three nanometers. I mean, a speck of dust would completely block and ruin the whole chip. So there, there are so many constraints in there. But then when you're operating the facility, it's not the engineers who built the facility who operate it. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different crew. And they come in and they're dealing a lot with the software and the machines and how to uh, calibrate them and make sure that they're producing as efficiently as possible. Uh, remember, you know, the, the profitability of many of these facilities depends on how many chips they're getting out of a piece of silicone. Uh, the more they get out, the more profitable they are. So, you know, these very, very precise things, U.S really doesn't have anything that measures up. If it did, they wouldn't be looking to Taiwan to, mm -hmm. to do that. So it's just, it's not possible in the U.S. long term. In terms of containing China already, uh, the U.S. is voicing concerns that China is making legacy chips. That means, you know, these 28, 42 nanometer chips, which, you know, are perfectly fine for cars. And they're upgrading their uh, abilities by stacking them and using AI chips on top of them. So China is already innovating and they're taking care of things. You know, these these three nanometer chips, it might be fine for missiles, but for 99% of everything else, consumer goods, you don't need them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not used and they're way, way too expensive. So the consumer market where uh, the U.S. was concerned, they said, you know, how do we contain China? We want to contain it by impacting its ability to produce these consumer goods. But China's already worked around that. And now, Huawei announced that they have a, a new facility uh, that's going to get them down to seven nanometers. The yield, you know, how many chips they get out of a piece of uh, silicone is not going to be great, but it's the only thing they have. So they'll be able to charge and be profitable based on that until they are able to circumvent mm -hmm. the existing roadblocks in the technology and start producing at a world competitive level. And mm -hmm. when that happens, guess what? U.S. is foreclosed. They're out. And another very interesting piece of news is that um, at the end of last month, TSMC opened its Global Research and Development Center in Taiwan. And the company's CEO says its Research and Development Center underscores the company's determination to continue to invest and thrive on the island. What message does it send? Well, it's not just that message. Uh, on July 25th, TSMC said they're going to invest 90 billion new Taiwan dollars, two point about about three billion, to build an advanced chip plant in Taiwan as it expands production to meet booming demand for artificial intelligence AI chips. Uh, that clearly shows you because that's the next stage. The fact that they're building that plant there in Taiwan is a demonstration, not only uh, that their R&D is going to be there, but their future is there. Basically, you know, the U.S. has been uneasy about Taiwan being the lifeblood of the world's chip supply, especially, you know, with its geopolitical concerns uh, with China. So this is, you know, everyone says, oh, we're going, you know, the U.S. is battling China. Well, this is an example of where the battle with China is, you know, really going to grind Taiwan up uh, economically. And I think there are so many countries around the world, uh, so many places that are just saying, look, we don't want to be part of this choice between the U.S. and China that the U.S. is pushing, not China. He says, we're going to do business, we're going to be competitive, and we're going to be part of a global uh, economy, not an economy that is aimed at propping up the United States. That's Einar Tengen. Thank you for staying with Road Today. Bye for now.